Turn with me to John 17. John 17. Continuing our study of Christ's prayer. John 17, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 19. And considering the fortress of holiness. John 17, verses 13 through 19. Give attention to the Word of God. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have left us the words of Christ, that we might have his joy fulfilled in ourselves. Please answer your son's prayer this evening as we look to his words seeking to be filled. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Some of you may know that my father served in the military. He did a career in the U.S. Army. He was a cold warrior. Now, for some of the younger sort, um, you may not know what that means. During my father's generation, during the Vietnam War, There was a Cold War going on with Russia. He was a Vietnam vet, served in combat, did a career. Uh, During his career in the Army, he got into signals intelligence. He spied on the Ruskies. He listened to their radio messages. And after his career in the Army, he retired and was hired by a contractor. And he became a fortress builder. Now, not the fortresses you think of with kings and horses and knights, He was tasked with building hardened sites, and the sites that he built were physically hack-proof. Part of the reason he took, took, uh, took this job after his career in the Army was that he had been through the the mess. He was in Signals Intelligence. He knew how to get the information out of them. Therefore, he knew how to prevent them getting information out of us. And so he became a fortress builder. He built these hardened sites, and he ended his career doing that. Well, likewise, uh, in this passage, we are taught about a great enemy, worse than the Russians, worse than the Marxists, worse than the communists. The enemy that Christ is speaking about here is obviously Satan. And as the power of Satan visibly increases around us, there are many gurus and guides who have arisen with plans and schemes. Some say the church needs legislation to protect her. We need laws passed for religious liberty. 
and freedom of conscience. Others say we need to compromise with the world. You hear this often in our assemblies, that it's very sad to hear this, but men will make arguments and say the world is watching us. We need to be careful what we do. Others think that we need guns and guts to protect the church. Now, each of these things may have a place. May, I say. None of them provide the protection that the church needs. Because, you see, the enemy doesn't come at us with lawsuits. The enemy doesn't come to us with deals. The enemy does not come to us with swords drawn. That's not how Satan works. The power of Satan is not in taking your life. The power of Satan is not in taking your wealth. The power of Satan is not in destroying your reputation. No. The power of Satan is in taking your soul through sin. That is how Satan kills his enemies. It is in killing you by seducing you to live for you that Satan destroys the church. And who among us can resist? Do you have the power to resist the evil one? Do you have the wisdom to outsmart the one who has existed longer than creation? Not eternally, but longer than the creation itself? The answer is that none of us have the power to resist him. None of us can withstand him. He is the great dragon and the serpent of old. But that's why we have Christ. That's why we have one, not a cold warrior, but a warrior from heaven. Christ, knowing the danger, provides the only fortress that can protect us from the power of Satan. And that fortress is the fortress of holiness. What we're going to see in this passage is that Christ, though departed out of the world, guards his people still from the power of Satan in the fortress of holiness. Christ, though departed out of the world, guards his people from the power of Satan in the fortress of holiness. Now, there's four things in this passage. I know that's one more than I normally do, twice as much as it was last time. Bear with me. There are four things we're going to notice in this passage. The joy of holiness, the need for holiness, the means unto holiness, and the power of holiness. The joy of holiness, the need for holiness, the means unto holiness, and the power of holiness. Verse 13 is the joy of holiness. Verses 14 and 15 is the need for holiness. Verses 16 and 17 is the means to holiness. And verses 18 and 19 is the power of holiness. One more time, because I know this is a longer outline than I normally give. Verse 13 is the joy of holiness. Verses 14 and 15 are the need for holiness. Verses 15 and, I'm sorry, 16 and 17 is the means for holiness. And verses 18 and 19 is the power of holiness. So we begin 
verse 13, with the joy of holiness. Christ, uh, just keep in mind some of the context here. You'll remember last time we were together, we looked at verse 12 by itself, the son of perdition. Christ is in the middle of his prayer, and he says, I was with them, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, he's obviously speaking of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer who sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver. You'll notice that this is actually the introduction to what he's about to pray. And you'll notice in verse 12, he says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. So now the the question is, if Christ departs, who can defend us? While he was in the world, he kept us. But what are we going to do now when he leaves the world? Well, that's what he goes to now. It's the same theme that Christ dealt with in the case of Judas. It is through his power and ministry that he keeps the elect from the power of Satan. But now in verses 13 through 19, he's going to expand that idea and give us more detail specifically in how he does that and what the fortress looks like. So in verse 13, he begins and he says, but now, notice the contrast, while I was in the world, but now, I come to you. Obviously speaking about Christ's departure, his physical presence is being taken away. This is one of the greatest blows to the disciples. Christ is God in the flesh. He's the Savior of mankind. And as Peter said at one point, In the Gospel of John, Christ asks them, are you going to depart also? And Peter says, where else can we go? You have the words of life. There's nowhere else that we can go. We want to be with you. Because they recognized in Christ, God had come to visit them. Now, the physical presence of Christ is going to be taken away from them. But his spiritual presence will remain. This is through his words. Notice what he says in verse 13. Now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world. Christ's spiritual presence is still with his people through the things that he spoke in the world. Christ is going to depart, and so he leaves with us his words. This is accomplished through his word and spirit. In the Old Testament, this was what Israel experienced at Mount Sinai. Moses recounts the Mount Sinai experience. Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 18. Read these on your own. I don't want to spend too much time going back and forth. But Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 18, Moses tells the people, beware that you don't make a graven image because you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you. In the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses recounts the Sinai experience, The thing that is always emphasized is that Israel heard the words of God, not that Israel saw the form of God. Likewise, in Ephesians, now I do want you to turn to this one. In Ephesians 3, Paul speaks in the same vein, but I want you to notice how Paul connects these ideas. Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 3.8 says this. He says, To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
this grace was given to me that I should be one to proclaim the words of Christ in the world. And now notice what Paul does in verse 17. He says, therefore I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice the connection. Paul preaches the words of Christ, and so he prays that Christ would bless it and that his presence would be with you through the words of Christ. And so Christ says, but now I come to you. These things I speak in the world, that my joy might be fulfilled in them. Now, we need to keep in mind what the words of Christ are and what they are meant to produce. The word of Christ and the spirit of Christ is unto holiness. The gospel is a call to holiness. The spirit that's given is the holy spirit. As Paul says in the book of Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so the gospel call is a call unto holiness. It is the message that through the finished work of Christ, God's own holiness is given to you by faith. And so Christ says, so that my joy might be fulfilled. Christ is departing. He says these things in the world so that my joy might be fulfilled in themselves. And this is joy. I read 1 Chronicles 20. Uh, I encourage you to go back and, and think about that passage perhaps this evening or sometime this week. But I hope you noticed in that description, uh, 1 Chronicles 29, sorry. 1 Chronicles 29, David is preparing to build the temple. Did you notice some of the key phrases? He is prepared diligently to build the holy house. He asks Israel who will consecrate themselves, who will set themselves apart as holy. And the people offer willingly, and they rejoice with joy. Holiness is our joy. We often mistake this, don't we? We, we often mistake joy for what the world tempts us with. We often mistake our sin for joy, or indulging the flesh for joy. Holiness is joy. Now, why is this? Because it is in holiness, through being set apart to God's service by the grace of Christ, that we are brought near to God and are made like God. You ever notice in the tabernacle system, Aaron is set apart as the holiest member of the nation of Israel. And he's the only one that can go into God's presence. In the gospel economy, everyone who believes in Christ is set apart as holier than Aaron. And you can enter in even closer than Aaron because you are made like Christ, our great high priest. You notice this in the passage. Notice what Christ says about the disciples. Um, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Those who receive the words of Christ are made holy just like Christ. And they are not of the world. 
This is your joy, brothers and sisters. This is the thing that you need. This is also our protection. You know, um, oftentimes an army will lose the fight when they lose their morale. They may have all the weapons, they may have all the supply, they may have all the tactics, all the intelligence, all the uh, cold warriors who can spy on the Russians. But if they lose their joy, if they lose their morale, they've probably lost the battle. Joy in Christ and his holiness is your protection. Now why is this? Well, Christ now moves on to talk about the need for our holiness. Look at what he says in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You'll notice in the three following points, there's this contrast between the believer and the world consistently throughout. Here, the believer receives the word of God, and therefore, the world hates them. You know, as, as they say in the South, there's nothing for it. There's nothing for this. What does that mean? Sometimes I have to translate my phrases. There's nothing you can do about that. Those that receive the word of God and are transformed into the likeness of Christ will be hated by the world. Just as uh, what goes up must come down, likewise, those who receive the word, the world hates. There's nothing for it. This is a reality that we have to accept because as Christ says, the world hates us, it is inevitable, and it's the world's hatred that highlights the need for protection. The word hate, the Greek word is miseo. We use this in uh, words. Uh, it, it means an active ill will. It means seeking to do harm to another. It is the spirit of persecution. Paul the Apostle, as we read in Acts 9 this morning, he was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. That's the world's hatred. This, this word, uh, uh, I should say this world, th there's something we need to, to apply here. It, we need to take this very seriously. And I just want to say this before I go to this application. What I'm about to, to say to you about the world's hatred is not reason to despair. It's not reason to hate them back. It's reasons to be holy because your holiness is your only protection from this. We cannot assume goodwill or good faith in the enemies of the church. Let me say that again. We cannot assume goodwill or good faith in the enemies of the church. Perhaps you could before 2020, but we cannot any longer. The events of 2020 up until now, I think, have proven conclusively the enemies of the church hate the church, and they will do what they can to destroy the church. In the Commonwealth of Virginia, liquor stores were opened, churches were closed. That's the hatred of the world. They hate you. They hate your children. They hate your Christ. And they are out to destroy you because they cannot destroy Christ. 
Revelation 12, 12 speaks about the great serpent, Satan, the evil one, being cast out of heaven. And the angels say, Rejoice you in heaven, for the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. But woe unto you on the earth, for he comes to you with great wrath, knowing that he has a short time. And he persecuted the woman who had borne the child. That's the hatred of the world that Christ is speaking about here. We need to recognize that, and we need to have a sober estimate of the danger, because this is grounding our need for holiness. Do not despair. God has overcome him. And this is what Christ prays for in verse 15. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. It would be a lot easier to leave the world, wouldn't it? There's all kinds of theology, all kinds of conferences, all kinds of universities built upon the premise that what God has promised to his people is that one day he'll snap you out of the world and all your troubles will be over. You will not suffer the great tribulation as our dispensational brothers would teach. But that's not what our Lord prays for. And his prayers are always answered. His prayer is to be protected from the evil one. Notice what he says. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. (coughs) Pardon me. Even though the danger is so great, don't take them out. Show your overwhelming power to protect them in the midst of the world. How necessary is prayer? Our Lord, seeing the danger, takes himself to prayer. Do likewise, for you are in grave danger. The Psalms speak about the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. How did Christ teach us to pray? In the name of the Father. When it says the name of the Lord is a strong tower, it's speaking about prayer. That's where we find our safety. That's where the Lord uh, goes to protect his people. Notice also, take great hope from this. I said earlier, Christ's prayers are always answered. Which means you won't be taken out of the world, but you will be protected from the evil one. So Christ highlights the need for this holiness. It's the hatred of the world, the danger that we are in. And then he moves to speaking about the means to holiness. Verse 16 and 17. He says, They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. He repeats this again. The world and the believer, that contrast, runs throughout this passage. little reminder here. We need to be just mindful. The world are those who live by the flesh. The believers are those who live by the Spirit. Believers are not of the world, as Christ says here, because they do not live by the flesh, though they are still in the flesh. Paul actually says this in 2 Corinthians when he's dealing with enemies of the church that are trying to um, undercut his ministry. He says, we do not war according to the flesh, though we live in the flesh. Those that are in the world live according to the flesh. Those that are believers live according to the Spirit. 
Any spiritual advances or successes or victories that you see in a believer's life are not his doing. Any spiritual good you see in your own life is not your doing. Not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so Christ says they are not of the world. Verse 17, then he talks about the means of protection or the means of holiness. He says, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Now Christ comes down to the, to the heart of the prayer request to his Father. The, 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 I say these things that my joy might be fulfilled in them. They're in grave danger, Father. Protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them. Set them apart as holy. Your word is truth. Truth is the means of our sanctification. Truth is the means of our sanctification. Now we need to clarify a little confusion here when we talk about holiness or sanctification. Sanctification is not greater efforts on your part. That's not sanctification. Sanctification is confessing the truth as God's word reveals it to your heart. Look at Psalm 51. Probably a very precious psalm to many of you as it is to me. Psalm 51. David praying after his great sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. David prays in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice carefully how David prays. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Pay attention. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Now here it comes. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. You see how David connects all these ideas. He says, you want me to know truth in the inner heart. I will confess the truth to you. Make me holy that I might be joyful. That is sanctification. And so Christ says, sanctify them through your truth. There's an important lesson here about the nature of sin. Actual sins come out of a sinful heart. But we often treat ourselves better than we deserve when it comes to our sins. We, we often think the actual sin was a moment of weakness. It's not really who I am. 
I made a mistake, and we excuse it away. The reason we sin, lie, blaspheme, steal, whatever the sin might be, you lie because the root of lying is within you. Thus, we should confess actual sins as David does here. Cleanse me of my iniquities, cleanse me of my transgressions, but we should also confess original sin. That's what David says in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's confessing original sin. He's saying that in my heart, I came from ordinary generation, as the confession puts it. By ordinary generation, I inherited this sin nature. Forgive me of this as well. Because original sin is guilty and worthy of punishment. Christ says that the truth is the means of our sanctification. He says, Father, sanctify them through your truth. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, because when we talk about holiness, it can be very easy to get discouraged. If you see your sins even to a small degree, the way David saw his sins, you can think, ah, there's no hope. I'm such a piece of work. Notice what Christ prays for. Father, sanctify them. Sanctification is primarily a work of God in your life through his means. And Christ's prayers are always answered. He will sanctify you through the truth. Now this truth is found in his word. Psalm 19, David gives us another example of how the truth should work in our lives. I won't read this, this whole section, but just look at verse uh, 12. Psalm nineteen twelve. David is recounting the glories of the law of God. And as he's meditating on the law of God, he's meditating on the word of the Father. He's learning the truth of the word. He then comes to this conclusion. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Here's a good practical lesson for you when you read the Bible. Start asking this question first. Don't ask the theological question. Don't ask the debate question. Start asking this very practical question. What do I need to be cleansed of in this passage? Where do I need to be sanctified in light of what I'm reading? And you'll grow in the scriptures more than you realize. Well, Christ says that the word, the truth of the Father found in his word is the means of sanctification, but we're still not holy just yet. We've learned about the joy of holiness. We've learned about the need of holiness. We've learned about the means unto holiness. But I think many of us stop here, especially in the Reformed world. I think we love the Word of God. We love the Bible. We love our theology. But if we don't recognize the power of holiness, we will not become holy. And that's where Christ turns now in verses 18 and 19. We need to 
keep a definition in mind. A means is something God uses to bring His grace to bear upon your soul. Means are not ends in themselves. Let me say it this way. A pipe is a means that you use to bring water to bear upon your garden. The pipe is the means. The water is the main thing. The word is a means of grace. This should teach us that when we go to the Word, we're looking for something from the Word. We're not going to the Word to learn more about the Word. We're going to the Word to have something brought to bear upon us. So what is the grace that the Word brings to bear? What is the grace unto holiness that the Word brings to bear upon us? Well, it's nothing less than the cross of Christ. Look at what he says. Verse 18. As you've sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. Again, world and believer. Third time's the charm, as they say. This is a Hebrew way of emphasizing something. In Isaiah 6, the angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the Hebrew way of bringing emphasis Christ has said this three times, world believer, world believer, world believer. Verse 19, he says, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself. This is a reference to the cross. Sanctification only happens, even in the case of Christ. Sanctification only happens through the blood of a sacrifice. That's what the laws of Moses teach us. That's the main lesson from all the ceremonial law. You want to be holy? You need blood. Christ is going to sanctify himself. How? By shedding his own blood as the ultimate sacrifice. Notice he also says in verse 19, for their sakes, as our substitute... He's doing this on behalf of others. It's not for his own sake. Because he is God Almighty from all eternity, uncreated, infinite, and eternal, equal in power and glory with the Father, he is holiness itself. He doesn't need to be sanctified. But for your sake, for my sake, he sanctifies himself as our Messiah. Hebrews 10, 5 through 14, the author uh, deals with this idea. We've seen this in the Hebrews series, but it's good to be reminded. Hebrews 10, verse 5, Therefore, when he, Christ, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me, To do your will, O God. Notice the glory of Christ here. All the sacrifices God the Father was not pleased with. He prepared a body for Christ. And Christ willingly comes and says, I will do your will. I will be the sacrifice to set apart your people. 
previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them. Skipping down to verse 10, by that will, the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. Now notice, going back to John 17, he doesn't leave us there. Notice what he says. He connects his cross to the Word. Look at what he says. John 17, verse 19. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they might be sanctified by the truth. Let me speak plain. It is the cross of Christ that makes the Word effectual to salvation. And it is the cross of Christ, the power of His cross, that the Word brings to bear in your life for your sanctification. Let me, let me say this another way, because I think as Reformed Christians, we read verse 17 and we think, that's enough. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. I'm going to memorize the Gospel of John. Not a bad idea to memorize John. I'm not saying don't do that. But what I am saying is that the truth is sanctifying through the power of the cross. The power of sanctification is not in the words on the page. It's in the blood on the tree. That is the power of holiness. Now, how does this work? How are you and I, sinners, conceived in iniquity and brought forth in sin, made holy through the cross? Mortification and resurrection. Just as Christ died, you who are united to him died. Just as Christ rose, you who are united to him rose. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 18 deals with this at length, but for the sake of time I'll point you to Galatians 6 verses 11 through 16. Galatians 6 verses 11 through 16. Paul the Apostle writes, And notice what he's dealing with. He's dealing with those who live according to the flesh. Galatians 6, verse 11, it says, See what with large letters I've written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Christ our Lord, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. This is the power of holiness, brothers and sisters. You who were born in iniquity, who were brought forth in sin, the only way for you to be made holy is to die. And in the cross of Christ, you have died. You have been delivered from the slave master that you are in bondage to. 
You are no longer under the power of sin. That is not who you are. Just as Christ is not of the world, you are not of the world through his cross. In fact, you're part of the new world. Do you see what he says? In Christ, uncircumcision nor circumcision avails anything but a new creation. A brand new being that God brings into existence through the death of his son unto your sanctification. This is the power of holiness. Let me give you a little practical guidance on this. Mortification and quickening is the way that you grow in holiness. So what does this look like? It looks like this. Let's say you've got a sin issue that you're dealing with in your life, some besetting sin. The truth that you need to recognize is that you're doing that sin because in your heart you want to do that sin. In the inner man, you delight in that sin. So what needs to happen is not more efforts. What needs to happen is for you to be crucified, for you to be mortified with Christ in that area. And so you go to Christ, you confess just like David confessed, and you trust in the cross, believing that as Christ died, I died. As Christ rose, I rose. As Christ was crucified, I was crucified. As Paul the Apostle says, glory be to God that the world is crucified to me and I to the world. The key lesson in sanctification is that you and I are our biggest problems. And God deals with those problems at the cross. And so, you know, sanctification is no different than justification, really. It is different in the effects that it produces. But the way to be justified is the same way to be sanctified. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as you are mortified and you uh, exercise faith in the cross and your union with Christ, then you rise again to new obedience. You begin developing good habits. You begin developing uh, new righteousness in your life. Paul says in Romans 6, you are no longer slaves to sin, but you have been crucified. You are now slaves of righteousness. So what's the sin in your life? Let's say it's cowardice. You just you have a real problem with confrontation. That's a sin. Needs to be mortified. And so you go to God, you confess it, and you recognize when the situation arises, I don't need to be afraid of man. I'm going to give it an effort. I'm going to take a crack at it. And you keep practicing that. You keep denying your fears, and you keep walking in faith. And over time, you will grow in holiness through the power of the cross. Brothers and sisters, you need to be holy. The only protection you have from the power of Satan and the hatred of the world is holiness. Let me, let me illustrate this because it, this is very close to my heart, especially the day in which we live. Many of you are aware of the school that was shot up. Christian school, reformed school, was shot up by a transsexual terrorist. Children dead in the hallways. 
Now, it would be easy to say, well, pastor, they're the church. They believe in Christ, supposedly. Why weren't they protected? Were they not holy enough? But this is the point. Through the holiness of Christ, it doesn't matter what Satan does to us. Satan can destroy the body, but through holiness, you are protected and your soul is preserved. This is the kind of protection Christ is talking about. The one thing that matters is your soul, not your body, not your wealth, and not your name. Satan is more powerful than you, and the world hates you more than you realize. But God has overcome both him and them by blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, the agents of Satan, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of a new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Taste not, touch not, handle not. More effort on your part, which all perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will, worship and humility and neglect of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. The only way to be holy is to have your flesh dealt with. And the only way your flesh is dealt with is in the cross of Christ. For you are complete in Him. Be holy, become more like Christ, and you will be protected from the power of Satan. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, which contains your truth. We thank you also, Lord, that you give us your truth not to bludgeon us, but to communicate to us the grace of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he sanctified himself for our sakes, that we might be sanctified by the truth. We pray that you would do this great work in our lives, mortifying our flesh and rising us, uh, raising us up with Christ, that we might be holy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.